the word of God from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The word of God for the world. I'm not sure how it worked out that I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments the day after Gasparilla. <laughs> but you all decided to come anyway, so that's good. It's interesting, the distance between the Red Sea and the Jordan River is 250 miles. So for the Israelites in the book of Exodus, that would have been the straight shot. That would have been the most direct route to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, 250 miles. Now, if you figure that the average person can walk about 25 miles a day and still have enough time to rest at night, that meant that the length of time that it could have and should have taken the Israelites to escape bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt to the Promised Land in Canaan should have only taken about 10 days. But instead... That journey took 40 years through the wilderness, 40 years of wandering and wandering through the desert. Now, there are a couple obvious reasons why it took that much longer. First of all, if they had taken the straight shot, the direct route, it would have taken them right through Philistine territory, and those mighty menacing armies of the Philistines probably would have killed them right there on the spot. Also, that straight shot would have led them through the most arid, hottest, most brutal part of the Sinai Desert, where again, they would have surely met their doom. 
So instead, Moses led them the most indirect route possible along the southern coast of the Sinai, avoiding both the Philistines and the brutal Sinai heat. But I think there's a final reason, probably the most significant reason, why it took them 40 years and not just 10 days to get to the promised land. And I think that reason is a theological one. Because the road to forming Christian character takes time. The road to becoming more like Jesus, the road to developing faithfulness to God, the road to becoming a community of love and compassion has no shortcuts. Spiritual formation takes time. And this is all a way of saying that this morning, if you yourself feel like you are not quite far along enough in your faith, then congratulations. If you don't feel like you are experienced enough in the faith or knowledgeable enough about the faith or confident enough in your faith, then that is exactly the best place to be because it is, as the Israelites learned, in that situation there is very little holding you back from fully and completely trusting in God rather than in your own abilities. Because think about it. If the journey between Egypt and Canaan were filled with cities instead of desert, if it were filled with road signs and streets and maps instead of a vast wasteland, then it would have been a whole lot easier for the Israelites to depend on their own abilities to get from bondage into freedom. Instead, very quickly, those Israelites had to come to grips with this one fact. They had no clue where they were going. That moment when the Red Sea swallowed up again on itself and engulfed Pharaoh's armies, those Israelites stared ahead into that vast horizon and saw nothing but wasteland, nothing but desert, and they had no clue where to go next. And that is exactly how God wanted them. Because it was in that moment they had no choice but to follow God and not themselves. To follow that giant cloud that would lead them through the day. To follow that giant pillar of fire that would lead them through the night. And to follow God no matter where God would lead them, not knowing how long it would take. They didn't know if it would take days or weeks or months or years then they would have no luxury of knowing where they would be tomorrow. All they had, all they knew was the present. All they had was today. And on the road to spiritual formation, all you and I have is the present moment too. Just like the Israelites, God gives you and God gives me just enough just enough to make it through this day in order to get to the next. God gave the Israelites food to eat, just enough food in the form of manna, just enough manna to make it through the day. When that manna fell from that sky, the bread-like substance fell on the ground. It was sustenance for their bodies, even though the Israelites looked at it the first day and had no idea what it was. That manna in the Hebrew, the word for manna is matzot, which literally means, what the heck is it? <laughs> Seriously, that's what manna means. But they ate it 
because it was a gift from God and it would give them just enough strength to make it to the next day. Eventually, God expanded the menu, added quail, probably tasted like chicken, a little bit of chicken to go with their bread, forming the world's first chicken sandwich, probably. Eat your heart out, Popeyes. And then God gave them a really great gift, a tangible, physical reminder of God's constant presence with them in the form of a tabernacle, that portable, elaborate tent, that worship space that they could carry with them wherever they were so that when they pitched that tent, not even a big tent, just a 700-square-foot tent about the size of a one-bedroom apartment, but in that tent they knew that God was with them and that God was giving them just enough just enough to make it through that one day to see it through the next. And friends, that is the same God who does the same thing for you, especially if you are in a wilderness experience yourself. It's a reminder that you may feel like you are wandering right now, but you are not lost. You may feel like you are going nowhere, but God is showing you the very next step to take. And when the time is right, you'll get the next step after that and the next step after that. And you may feel like you are surrounded by a vast wasteland, but you are never truly alone. That's the spiritual principle that's guiding this entire back half of the book of Exodus, all culminating in the greatest and most iconic gift of all. It's the substance of our scripture reading today in the gift of the Ten Commandments. Like many of you, I can remember when I had to memorize those Ten Commandments as a child. I never could quite do it. I, I learned, like many of you did, that the Ten Commandments is more easily memorized as two lists instead of one list of ten, a list of four and a list of six, a list of four ways that we are to honor God, and then a list of six ways that we can honor our relationships with each other. When I was a kid, memorizing these Ten Commandments gave me an indelible picture of what I thought God looked like. I pictured God looking a whole lot like my elementary school principal, Mr. Sandhouse. Mr. Sandhouse was a tall, broad-shouldered, square-jawed, stern-looking man who towered over us. There was in my recollection, not a single curvy line on his body. It was all straight lines and right angles. And when we'd walk by his office in the hallways at school, if his door happened to be open, we would see Mr. Sandhouse peering at us like Israelites from Mount Sinai, just waiting for one of us to break the commandments. Behind him on the wall, mounted above his head, was a board, a big wooden board that he would use to paddle us. We were convinced that if any of us were ever sentenced to the mountaintop of Mount Sinai with Mr. Sandhouse, we would never come back alive. <laughs> so that was my image of God when I first memorized those Ten Commandments. But you know what? Over time, and since I've matured, supposedly, since those days, like many of you, my relationship with the Ten Commandments has changed a little bit. 
I might even confess and dare say that I've kind of fudged a little bit with some of the commandments. I mean, some of them are easier to keep than others. I'm, a, I'm batting a thousand when it comes to many of them, like this one, thou shalt not kill, no problem. <laughs> I haven't killed anybody. I haven't even thought about killing most people. <laughs> Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's donkey, no problem. (laughs) Never even had a thing for my neighbor's donkey. Uh, Thou shalt not cover your neighbor's spouse, all right, that's what curtains are for in our windows. Keep us from looking out. Uh Uh-oh. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. Should I ask for a show of hands on that one? Or should we just be content on not coveting their donkey? (laughs) This one's always fun. Thou shalt not lie. I have never, ever lied in my life. (laughs) Thou shalt honor your father and your mother. Okay, come on. How many of us have kept that? Can we ask for an exclusion during the holidays? Uh, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Surely that doesn't include golf courses, right? (laughs) And so we go, fudging our way through the Ten Commandments. I really like what author and preacher Barbara Brown Taylor has said about the Ten Commandments in a recent interview. She said, for all practical purposes, the Christian church has really reduced it down to eight. We really only observe eight of the Ten Commandments. One of those that we've fudged quite a bit is this business about not creating images of God. The early church dispelled of that one right away when it started creating paintings and icons and sculptures and crucifixes and a whole bunch of other pieces of Christian art. But the biggest one, she said, that is the worst kept commandment of them all, Sabbath. And I will admit that clergy are especially the worst at this one. As you might imagine, we work on Sundays every single week. Some of you would say it's the only day of the week that we work. (laughs) But I think all of us have a problem with Sabbath, not just the formal keeping of a weekly Sabbath one day a week, but in practicing the spirit of of, of Sabbath in our normal rhythms, in our daily routines. We work hard without resting. And even when we play, we play in ways that are not good for our souls. And we regularly rule God out when it comes to spending at least a moment of every day with God. That's why I think the Bible Project is in part so important, because it's pushing us to create muscle memory to devote at least some moments every single day with God. The bottom line is this, the Ten Commandments, as iconic as they have been for the Judeo-Christian faith, they are far less scary to us now. They are far less imposing to us than when we pictured God as Mr. Sandhouse, when we saw the Ten Commandments as a big punitive document. But you know what? Maybe that's okay. Because maybe the Ten Commandments are not meant to be a punitive document after all. Maybe there's another way to look at the Ten Commandments and all of the commandments 
in the Torah that gives us a much fuller, much richer, and much more meaningful truth for us to apply today. And what might that truth be? Well, I think we get a hint of what that truth might be if we take a look at the very next chapter in Exodus. Right after Exodus 20, where we read about the Ten Commandments, we get Exodus 21, which I would dare say has never been memorized by any child's Sunday school class in history because it contains beautiful verses like this, Exodus 21, 2, when you buy a slave, he shall serve you for six years. How many of you have ever memorized that when you were a child? Then there's this one, verse 7. When a father sells his daughter off as a slave, I can't even read the rest of that one. Verse 15. Anyone who violently kills his parents shall be put to death. Why do you even got to say violently in that sentence? And it goes on and on in Exodus 21. If you kidnap a person, you're put to death. If you curse your parents, you're put to death. You punch a pregnant woman and cause a marriage, you, you just got to pay a fine. Go figure on that one. I mean, I just can, just can imagine the kids in our Wesley Center memorizing Exodus 21 and going to their parents and saying, look what I learned in church today. All of a sudden, the whole section here does not feel like something that we want to memorize as kids. So what do we do? What do we do with texts like that? And there are a whole lot of texts like that all throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And maybe we think there are only two options. Maybe the only two options are either we take it all literally or we dismiss it entirely. Are those really the only two options? Well, maybe one of the ways that we can take the Bible seriously, if not always literally, is to find a third option, a way through the center. Now, if you've been listening to our really excellent Bible Project podcast, if you listen to the one this past week, and if you're part of our online Facebook group, we sort of teased out what that third option might be with troubling texts like that. In the most recent podcast, uh, our own Matt Hotho interviewed Dr. Bo Adams of the Candler School of Theology, and I really love the insight that he gave on texts like this. He said that scriptures like these are like wake-up alarms to us, because when we read passages like this, they wake us up and alert us to the rather obvious fact that the culture of the Hebrew people 3,000 years ago is different from the culture we live in today. It's very easy to forget that, but when we hit texts like these, it wakes us up with that reminder. So the fun thing that we get to do is to take the truth, the timeless little nugget of truth that's embedded in that text, strip away the culture that was unique only to that time, and somehow translate that truth into a way that our culture today can maximize its full value. That's the fun, challenging task we get to play if we want to take the Bible seriously, if not always literally. So what might that insight be? Well, one thing we might choose to do is to not look at this text prescriptively which means that it's prescribing to us something that we need to do. 
This text is not prescribing that we go out and own slaves or that we punish people by death. Instead of being prescriptive, what if this text were descriptive? In other words, simply describing, simply affirming what the timeless human condition is, which is this. Regardless of the culture, either way back then or now, the human condition has always been and still is this, that when we are left to our own devices, when we are left alone to ourselves, our default mode is that we cause harm to ourselves, cause harm to each other, and we fail to honor God. That is as true now as it was 3,000 years ago. Now, back then, back in that culture, they needed certain guardrails. That's Bo Adams' term. Guardrails to encourage them to not harm themselves or others or to honor God. And the guardrails that were unique to that culture had to do with owning slaves, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth punishment, and responding to violence with violence. But those are not the same guardrails that we need today because we live in a different culture, because we don't own slaves anymore, thank goodness. And we don't default to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth punishment, thank goodness. And we don't have to respond to violence with violence, thank goodness. So even though the human condition hasn't changed, our task is to take texts like these and ask ourselves the question, what are the guardrails that we need today to help us honor our relationships with God and one another? That is the timeless truth of texts like these, which leads us to the question, what might our guardrails be today? And you know what? Jesus asked that same question. Just 2,000 years ago, he had the task of translating the timeless truths of ancient Hebrew texts into the culture that he lived in and into the culture that we live in. One day, in the Gospels, a man came up to Jesus, a self-described expert on the commandments, and pressed him with a question to test him. In my mind, this man who came to test Jesus looked a whole lot like Mr. Sandhouse. He came up to Jesus and said, which one, Jesus? Which one of these commandments is the greatest? Which one of the 10 commandments? Which one of the 613 commandments in Hebrew law is the greatest one? He was trying to trick Jesus. It was a trick question because he was approaching it from that culture seeing the commandments as punitive documents. So Jesus, in that moment, not only had to answer the man's question, but had to translate the truth of the ancient scriptures in a way that formed a new guardrail for a new time for the people of God of that culture. And I love the answer that Jesus gave. Because the very same guardrail that he gave for that time is the same guardrail for us today, 2,000 years later, for those who seek to follow Jesus. One word, four letters, love. Love, he said, was the greatest of the 10, the greatest of the 613. Love God, he said, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what the greatest commandment is, the one thing that will keep you honoring God and honoring each other is simply this, love God and love all. Love God with your whole being, 
Love all without exception. That's all you got to do. It's as simple as that. And it's as hard as that. I don't know about you, but it's a whole lot easier for me to remember that one word than it is for me to be scared of the Ten Commandments, let alone memorize 613 commandments. To love God and love all. For any of us who are wandering through the wilderness of life, that really is the only guardrail that you and I need. Because I suspect that in this moment there are many of us, if not most of us, who are walking through a wilderness experience of some kind. And the truths of this back half of Exodus are as true for you as it was thousands of years ago. Follow God one step at a time. And don't worry about the next step until God reveals it to you. Remember that God has given you just enough of what you need to make it through the day and see tomorrow. And above all else, love. Love God with your whole being. Love all without exception. It really is as simple as that. It really is as hard as that. It really is as important as that. Let's pray together. Oh God, you meet us into the wilderness of the moment to remind us of your faithful provision, giving us everything we need for the day. And you guide us and direct us along the path that leads to full life, setting for us a guardrail of love to keep us moving, to honor you and to love others. We pray, God, for any of us who are in the wilderness today, grant us your strength, your comfort, your constant provision, and the reminder that you are always with us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and let all God's people say, amen. In a moment, I'll be calling for the offering. I just want to remind us that next week, we start a brand new worship series. It's called Road Rules. We'll be reading through the texts of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Try to contain your enthusiasm. (laughs) It is very easy for us to read these texts and get bored or distracted, but we would miss out on the incredibly rich, transformative insights that these texts contain. So we'll stick with these readings. I encourage you to read them every day. Follow the daily devotional. It contains beautiful insights that can unlock these scriptures for you. Listen to our marvelous podcasts because they are uploaded a new one every single Monday morning. Lean into your classmates or in your small groups and join us in worship for these next four Sundays as we take a look at a new way to see these beautiful texts from Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's all a way of saying that when we offer ourselves to God, it is not just about money, although we thank you for your generosity today. We also read the Scriptures every day. We invite others to an experience of Jesus, and we lift up the power of prayer. That's what we offer to God in these moments as we invite the ushers to come forward.